Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will be looking at Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 24. In this section, we find Abram returning victorious from the battle, and we saw him using the means that were at his disposal that the Lord had given him and working according to faith and the Lord blessing that and the alliances that he had made, the relationships that he had formed and people that he had built trust with had come and reported to him what had happened, not only in terms of war, but specifically how it affected his family with regard to his nephew Lot and all of his possessions. And of course, he comes back victorious. And the question that we all have is, what happens then? And it's also worthy of note that it's not the end of the entire section here. Other people are going to benefit from the actions of Abram. And so we're going to see that come into play. Because remember, at the beginning of the chapter, we're introduced to all these kings. And, you know, some of them... (laughs) For the most part, actually, all of them, we're not going to go back and visit. I mean, we're going to go back and visit the place of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the kings themselves are not going to be mentioned again. And so the question is, is why do we have to know all this other than the fact that it affected Lot directly? Well, it's all going to come into play here as we see him returning victorious from the battlefield. And so in verses 17 to 24, we see that victorious people of God may be assured of discernment to distinguish God's blessings from worldly treasure. So as Abram is coming back, he's going to have to discern and distinguish between what is the blessing of God and worldly treasure. And the question that, of course, we have is, are we tempted by worldly treasure? And how should we respond when presented with that? Now, it's interesting to note that he's just come off of the heels of one incredible challenge. War, I would say, is right up there with the list of, of big challenges that you could face. Actual war, not just spiritual war, although that's very challenging as well. And it right away brings forth to us this idea that just because we come through one uh, conflict and and one trial or one tribulation doesn't mean that we're free and somehow we deserve a break. That's not always how things go. Sometimes we can face another challenge or temptation right away. And just like on the real battlefield, you can go from one battle and you can have a, a relatively small skirmish or whatever, and it can be very intense and all of that, and you get done. And right as you're Uh, you know, kind of taking stock of everything, you can be hit again and plunged into another battle. I mean, you don't get to decide when it's over. And that's also important for believers to understand because we always have to be ready and we always have to be on guard. We always have to be uh, diligent and vigilant, watching and ready to go. In this case, Abram, of course, is not faced with another war, but the the temptation that's coming is something that's entirely different, and it's even subtle. And, And so we see this because he's going to be offered, you know, two different things here. He's going to have the opportunity to respond to two different people, and both of them could seem positive. And so 
this idea of subtlety here is something that we ought to take into consideration as well. First uh, Peter chapter five verse eight tells us of our adversary, our foe, Satan, and it says of Satan that he is not only our adversary, but he is like a roaring lion in the sense that he prowls about. We're not talking about roaring and the attack, but we're talking about this subtle sneaking around on the prowl, looking for someone to devour. There is a subtlety that is present here. And that's really what we have to take note of because what Abram is going to come face to face with is subtle. Uh, There's going to be this encounter with Melchizedek, and then he's going to have an encounter with the king of Sodom, and he's going to have to be able to differentiate between the two, distinguish what is the best uh, or the better of the two options, and he's going to have to navigate those things uh, adeptly. So in verses 17 to 21, the first thing we see under this is that God's blessing and the world's benefits may be easily confused. Verse 17, we read this, after his return from the defeat of Chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. And we actually went a little bit longer than I intended to right there, so we'll just go ahead and stop. So in verses 17 then to 21, we see God's blessing and the world's benefits may be easily confused. First, we have the king of Sodom in verse 17. Again, we know little about him other than he's been mentioned here. And because we are probably very familiar with the chapters that are going to follow, we know a little bit about the moral status of the city. And because of the preceding chapter, we know that the men of Sodom were evil and very wicked and did did that which is evil in the sight of the Lord. So at least we know that about him right now. But about the man personally, we know very little. Now it looks like this king of Sodom has benefited from Abram's intervention. Uh, He goes out with his strong men for battle, over 300 of them, as we saw in the preceding verses. And not only was Lot the beneficiary, but now uh, the king of Sodom is. And so he comes out to meet uh, Abram here in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. But then at the same time that you have this king coming, you have Another king coming, the king of Salem, as he's called, Melchizedek in verse 18, who is called the king of Salem. He brings out bread and wine, and we see here that he is both a king, verse, the beginning of verse 18, and at the end of verse 18, he is a priest. He is a priest and king. And so that gives us a little bit of insight because Jesus is going to be named after the order of Melchizedek, a higher priestly order. And with Jesus, the one who is the fulfillment of all the promises of scripture, he holds three offices. He holds the office of prophet and priest and king. 
Now, according to what we know in the scriptures, Melchizedek is a type of Jesus Christ. He's a type of Christ. Uh, and like we said, we, he, here he unites the offices of priest and king in the ancient city of Salem. But what is he? Well, we don't know much about him, and that's on purpose because of how God intends to use Melchizedek as an illustration and as a teaching uh, opportunity. So we don't know of his lineage. We don't know where he came from. All This is how we're introduced to him as somebody who exists as a king and as a priest of the God most, of God Most High. And that's intentional. Doesn't mean that he is eternal. Doesn't mean that he didn't have parents. But when the scripture then says, uh, Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, we can say that he is of this high eternal priestly order because of that. I hope that makes sense. So here in this text, we find out that Melchizedek, A, is a God-fearer. He is a high priest who precedes Abram. Abram isn't a priest at this point, and no priest is going to come from his line until several generations from now with the with the tribe of Levi. Uh, and so that's very, very important to understand because Melchizedek is already a priest. Uh, therefore, Melchizedek is not in the line of Levi. That is a tainted priesthood, uh, and Jesus is not part of the Levitical priesthood. He is of a higher order, and we're introduced to that here. Then he blesses Abram in verses 19 and 20, and we read this blessing, blessed be Abram by God most high. God is the one doing the blessing, uh, possessor of heaven and earth, and also God is to be blessed. Blessed be God most high, Elion, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So God is the one who blesses him and we are again introduced to God. This happens so many times uh, throughout scripture, not only as uh, the most high, but he is the possessor, we are told here in this verse, of heaven and earth. Uh, the fact that his ownership is everything, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the people and those who dwell therein. Uh, Psalm 24, verse 1. And so we have to remember that, that everything belongs to the Lord. And so the one who created everything, the one who owns everything, has chosen to bestow his blessing on Abram. And uh, we see that God indeed is also to be blessed. We can bless God, not that we can give him anything, but we bless God when we speak the truth about him, when we honor him, when we lift his name up and we worship him and we give him the glory that is due his name. He is the one who is granted victory. And we see that in verse 20. Blessed be the God, uh, God most high, really what's connecting this and why are we giving him this blessing? Well, he doesn't need any reason to because he deserves it by virtue of who he is. But in this particular case, it's because he has delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. And this introduces us to the fact that all victories belong to God, which we covered in a previous episode. Right, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. And so we, we recognize that. Abram responds then, and he gives him a tenth of everything at the end of verse 20. This is our introduction to the tithe. And there are only a few places in scripture where, where Melchizedek is mentioned. Uh, Psalm 110 is going to be a prominent spot in the Old Testament outside of Genesis 14. And Psalm 110 is then going to be quoted 
a few different times, all in the book of Hebrews. And it's in Hebrews uh, chapter 5, verse 6, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20. And then uh, there's a lengthy discussion of Melchizedek and what it and, and how he, it all ties together in Hebrews chapter 7. So if you'll just allow me just a little bit here, I'm going to read uh, Hebrews chapter 7, 1 to 10, and then a few verses later so we can put all of this together. Why is it that Abram paid him a tithe? Here's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7, 1 to 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. That's incredible. There was no commentary there. That was just me reading Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 10. I mean, it just explains everything. And again, we prefaced that a minute or two ago and talked about the fact that he is specifically given without genealogy because of how they're going to tie in Christ's priesthood. Doesn't mean that he lives forever and Melchizedek is still alive. It means that this priesthood was meant to symbolize something so that Christ could join a superior order of priests, and that would be seen in the picture of Melchizedek, who is clearly superior because, as the text says right there, it is the inferior who receives blessing from the superior. So when Melchizedek is blessing Abram, Therefore, Abram is the inferior. Jumping ahead a few verses in Hebrews chapter 7, that was 1 to 10, we go down to verses 15 to 17. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, there it is. In verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 7, that last part there is a direct quote of Psalm 110 verse 4, which is looking ahead to the Messiah, and it says of the Messiah of God, the Christ of God, that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, that was quoted in Hebrews 5 verse 6, Hebrews 6 verse 20, again in Hebrews 7 verse 17, which we just read, and of course here Psalm 110 verse 4, which was quoted, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. 
So in all reality, Genesis 14 is actually very, very important in the discussion of everything. It's not, it's not a chapter that we should get lost on, and we really need to understand what had happened, and, and that's why we spent that time giving giving the, the, the verses leading up to this all the time and discussion that we did, because it's important to understand how the kings got there, the society, the culture around this you know, Mesopotamian uh, time period and, and how kings paid tribute to one another and all these skirmishes arise, how Abram is, enters into war because war comes to him. All of those things are very important. Uh, he doesn't go out looking for it, but when it comes to him, now he engages, uses uh, the, the means that God has given him, all that. And then as he leaves... Melchizedek comes and God uses this very important in Abraham's life and will teach the people of Israel and will instruct the church as well how it all ties together so that we can learn of the Messiah that is going to come through Abraham's descendants because in him shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That is, of course, in Christ. And Christ is going to occupy three vital offices, prophet, priest, and king. And two of those are found right here in Melchizedek. It's absolutely beautiful uh, what happens here in the scriptures. And it's really incredible. So we have all of this happening, but then we have the temptation of Sodom. That's really in verse 21. So Abram pays a tenth to Melchizedek. And then the king of Sodom says to him, give me the persons, basically the people that you've rescued. I want all my I want my, my slaves, but he says, take the goods for yourself. So what he's offering to Abram is he's saying, I, I'm giving you a chance to increase your material wealth. You just paid a little bit to Melchizedek. I'm saying increase for yourself your material goods. I want to keep a portion of that, but I'll let you keep a lot more. There is a temptation there. And there's a little bit of temptation now, but really nothing later. There's perceived blessing that in that he could keep material blessings our material items, right? But what the king of Sodom is offering is not true blessing. The true blessing is what he received from Melchizedek, who worshiped God the Most High, El Elyon. Sodom says, give me back, or the king of Sodom says, give me back my people, you can have the possessions. But Abram has a fresh reminder of who God the Most High is. And fortunately, because of his interaction with Melchizedek, he responds accordingly. And he says, what? I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high. There it is again, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth, just as Melchizedek said to him, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So his response is in accordance with faith, and he wants to understand that all that he is going to possess, all the land that he is going to come to own, and that his people are going to stand to inherit, all of that is going to be from God and God alone. And no one can say, I am the one who did this for Abram. So he turns that down. And then lastly, in these last couple of verses, we see God's blessing is untarnished by the world. Verses uh, 22 to 24, uh, we have this reiteration, I'm not going to take this, the Lord God, most high possessor of heaven and earth. Uh, I'm not going to take anything that I would not take the sandal or the thread or a sandal strap or anything of yours, lest I should say, I've, or you should say I've made Abram rich. 
I will also take nothing but what the young man have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. So here, as we wrap this up, we, we don't need the world to somehow try to add to the blessing of God. And I fear that this is happening in the church at large, uh, in mainstream evangelicalism, where they're trying to mix worldly blessings with God's blessings. For the believer, we need to be able to differentiate between those things. We need to be able to say, no, I truly want what God wants. And that's my desire. Again, we're told in the Psalms, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Doesn't mean the desires of your heart come first. The first thing that comes is your delight in the Lord. And once that happens, then your desires are actually going to shift towards the things that the Lord desires, and that can affect you with regard to your outlook on worldly things. We don't need the world to try and add their blessings to God, and shame on churches who are trying to mix the two. Secondly, God does want to bless his people today, as he did back then, not just with heaven, but he does give good gifts. We know from James 1.17, every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. He gives good things to his children. And one commentator said this, Abram knew the wicked nature of the people of Sodom and the man over them, and he discerned that his motive might be dangerous to the reputation of God's program in the future. He wanted this man to have no occasion to claim the responsibility for the blessing. A discernment of the nature and motive of those who give or offer to give is basic. Just because someone offers you something doesn't mean it's always good. So there has to be discernment in the life of the Christian. And then we'll end this episode here with this verse from the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. I believe that Abram won a physical victory in battle because he placed his faith in God and his weapons were not just of the flesh, but his weapons were divine. He had God on his side and God blessed him. And we need to remember that as believers. And of course, the whole point of this entire chapter is again to point to the supremacy of Jesus as the supreme, uh, of a supreme priestly order higher than Levi. He is the highest king, just as Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, <laughs> what his name means. It's just incredible. All of those things that we see in Hebrews chapter seven, again, go back and read that. We're supposed to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. But to see it all come together here in this episode, this would be a lesson that's going to stick with Abram for a long time. And people would have known that. And then, of course, God chooses to give it to Moses later on so that it can be put down in permanent records so that they can go over it again and again so that they are without excuse. And here we stand thousands of years later, and we too are without excuse because God has shown us not only what he has done to preserve this man Abram and his family yet again in battle and to extend his blessing to others who are in his proximity through his family and, the, and whatnot, but that through God's faithfulness to his promises that he made to Abram, we have stood to inherit an eternal blessing. And that is praiseworthy. So let's give praise to God for that. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.